Well, hey, good morning. Um, Good to see you all here this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. Romans 2, we're looking at verses 17 through 24, and we're continuing our series on the genius of Jesus. We're working through the book of Romans verse by verse. And for those that don't know me, my name is Seth Murphy. I'm one of the worship leaders here. And this is my second time up here, so they actually let me back up here. I didn't completely screw it up the first time, but I'm excited to be with you all again here this morning. Uh, So let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. Again, Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. And God's Word says this. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in it. God, prepare our hearts. Father, till our hearts to be able to hear your word, to be able to receive your word this morning. Help us not leave here the same. Help us to leave here like we've encountered you this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when my family and I moved into our first home about two years ago, one of the first things we did was buy a security system because people are crazy and I don't want them in my home. So I bought this kit. I installed all the sensors, I connected everything together, now we have some level of protection in our home. But I was thinking about this, what if I just bought the security kit, I got the boxes in, and I put them in the middle of the living room, I gathered my family around, and we just looked there and I said, look how safe we are, but I never installed anything. And every day we passed by it, we knew what it was for, we knew it was intended to do, but we never did anything with it. We wouldn't be very safe, now would we? And of course, if someone broke into our home and took our stuff, we'd probably wonder why the security system didn't do anything, but we'd actually look pretty foolish. And I think we'll see in today's passes that the Jews had all these privileges. They had all the law. They, they had all these things going for them, but they never used any of it as it was intended to be used. And in that, they were no different than any, anyone else. And so, as we get into the passes today, I thought it was important to give a high-level overview of where we're at in Romans. We've been covering a lot. And um, I think to really understand where Paul's um, going with his argument, I think it's good to kind of take a step back and understand where we've come from. So we're in the middle of Paul bringing down everyone's belief systems, everyone in their perceived self-righteousness, and he perceived security. And really, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. You have to understand the bad news in order to fully understand the good news of the gospel. So we know that Paul has to do this. He has to break everything down in order to eventually build it back up with the truth of the gospel. And if you think about your own salvation story, you knew that you had to come to grips with your own depravity. You had to come to grips with your own unrighteousness, your own sinfulness, to understand your need for the gospel, to understand your need for Christ Jesus. And so in Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul dealt with the sin and guilt of the Gentile world, the pagans in their denial of God. He said that God was evident in creation, and because of that, they were without excuse. But even though they saw him evident in creation, they rejected him, and God gave them over to their destruction. 
In Romans 2, then, we, we turn to dealing with the moral person, the person who judged the sinner, saying, I'm not like them. But Paul said that they too are without excuse. They judge others, yet condemn themselves because they do the very same things. And Paul says that because of that, they will not escape God's judgment. And that basically all who sin with and without the law will still be under judgment. And if you look at it, Paul's building this argument that's going to lead us ultimately to Romans 3.23 where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every group, that's every person. So now that Paul has discussed where the pagan world is, where the moral and self-righteous person is, both Jew and Greek, now Paul's going to be turning his attention to the Jews. That brings us to today's passage. We're going to see him break down their false sense of security, their, their privilege, their entitlement, and he's going to call out their hypocrisy. And so that's going to bring us to our first point today, and that's the Jews had a false confidence. The Jews had a false confidence. So verse 17, we'll read this again. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So we're going to stop there. Paul immediately calls out three things that they as Jews would take confidence in. One is that they bore the name Jews. That meant that they were descendants of Abraham through Isaac and noted a physical lineage. Then this title spoke to their nationality. It came from the Hebrew word Judah, meaning praised. And this This meant that it was an entitlement to be called a Jew. You were identified as being among God's chosen people. Second, he calls out that they had the law, that they were given the written law from Moses, the Old Testament, the word of the Lord by the prophets of God. Romans 3, 2 even says that they were entrusted with the very words of God. So, of course, that's an incredible entitlement. And because of this, they relied on it. Actually, if you look at that word in the Greek, to rely on, it, it, it means to find rest in to find comfort in. So they were finding comfort just in the fact that they had the law. And three, he points out that they boasted in a relationship with God, that they were God's people, that they bore a sign of covenant in circumcision. And of course, all this led to an arrogance and a complacency that, that blinded them. And we'll see a couple of examples of this here. So if we look at Matthew 3, we find John the Baptist. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people. He's preparing the way for Christ. And in Matthew 3, verse 7, you'll see it on your screen here. It says, When he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So John is telling them, hey, don't presume that since you're of Abraham's physical lineage that you don't need to repent. Don't presume that since you bear a physical marking of a covenant with God that you don't need a circumcision of your heart. Because God can take these stones that are just laying here and he can raise up children of Abraham. In John 8, 31, we also see Jesus, again, speaking to the Jews, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, if you continue in my word and you really are my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. So right there, you see where they're coming from. We are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Quick side note, Israel was enslaved five times in their nation's history. And at the time of this passage, uh, at the time of this passage, they were under the rule and authority of the Roman Empire. So again, they were blind to this idea that since they had some type of physical lineage, that they didn't need to be set free from the bondage of sin. 
And so the truth was is that they, they weren't free physically and they weren't free spiritually. And Jesus says later in this passage that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Yet they were blinded to this truth. In Micah 3.11, again, another example, we find leaders of Israel ruling foolishly, arrogantly. The priests are teaching. Prophets are, are speaking for greed and for bribery. But we look at their attitude here in verse 11 of Micah 3, again on your screen. It says, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet... Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So they were openly sinning against God. They were being greedy. They were taking bribes. Yet their attitude was one of a misplaced confidence in their position with God. In Jeremiah, we see several places where false prophets um, would, would speak and tell the people that, that nothing would harm them. That even though their sin was clear, if you look all throughout the Testament, they were making sacrifices to other gods, among other things. And because of this, they were subsequently enslaved to Babylon, and the nation was destroyed. So we see that the Jews were convinced that their heritage, their privileges, the fact that they had the law, that they were identified as God's chosen people, that they were circumcised was enough to protect them from judgment. And they didn't get it. They didn't get that the law wasn't enough. The law was meant to condemn. It was meant to condemn them. And their position, their title, all of that was, was, wasn't enough. And they built up a false sense of security and arrogance in who they thought they were. And that arrogance was also seen in their knowledge of the law. And we'll read this again back to our passage in Romans 2. I'll read 17 leading into verse 18. So if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, now verse 18, and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. So they knew the law. They knew God's promises. They knew of the blessings and curses. They knew his word. And if you notice the theme here, look how many times Paul actually mentions the law. So in verse 17, he says, rely on the law. In verse 18, instructed from the law. In verse 20, having the embodiment, the form, the function, the structure of knowledge and truth in the law. So they had the law. They were instructed from the law. They were to teach their children the law. They knew God's will from the law. They were, they were able to know the difference between right and wrong from the law. They could examine and test and approve things because of this. And because of this, they could be a light to the world because they knew God's law. They knew his will. They knew right and wrong. It could be a light to those in spiritual darkness. Everything that Paul says here in this passage. But they only had a possession of the law. They had a form, uh, the function, and the body of knowledge and truth, but they didn't have obedience to the law. And that brings us to our next point where Paul starts to call out the practice, their practice. And that's our second point. So verse 21, Paul then says, So you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? So like a lawyer asking a question that he already knows the answer to, Paul is disarming the Jews with these questions that he already knows the answer to. It's yes. And the truth is, is so did they. They knew that truth. And if you have kids, um, and you've been around kids, you've probably seen this firsthand, I have three crazy children at home. 
Um, <laughs> but like, how many times do you see what your kids do and you still ask them the question, hey, what did you do? Right? You already know what they did, but you want them to tell you. You want them to understand what they did. You want them to hear it for themselves, what they did. Because, because after that, they can start to come to an understanding of what they ought to do and how they ought to act. It's kind of that self-incrimination when you start to ask them, hey, what did you do? And so now Paul, after calling out that they have the law, that they rely on the law, that they're taught from the law, he starts to render these four charges against them. So you who teach, don't you teach, or excuse me, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself. So Paul here is saying, you Jew who has the, who has the law, the knowledge of the law, the relationship with God, the sign of covenant with him, you consider yourself a teacher, the ignorant, the immature. Well, do you teach yourself? And in fact, they were commanded to remind themselves to teach others, to teach their children the law and the miraculous and merciful things that God had done. One example is in Deuteronomy 6. It's not in your screen, but I'll read. It says that these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. It's in your mind, in your inner being. And to repeat them to your children to talk about it all the time when waking, when sitting, when lying down, when getting up, to keep them in front of you always. So they were to keep this in front of themselves, in front of their children, but they didn't. And in Psalm 78, we, we find a summary of this command and their response. And if you want to turn with me to Psalm 78, we're going to look at verse 5 here. So Psalm 78, verse 5, and it says, he established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. Might know what? God's laws and God's commands. And they were to rise and to tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So it's saying, Israel, teach these things to your children so that they will not be like their fathers, that they will know and love God and know and trust in him. But they didn't. If you skip down to verse 10, it says, they did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. And it says later in verse 32 that despite all of these wonderful miracles, despite all the merciful things that the Lord had done, they kept sinning and did not believe his wondrous works. So God made their days end in futility and their years in sudden disaster. So Paul knew that they didn't teach themselves. He knew, I mean, just from passages like that, that they continued to sin and continued to disregard God. And that showed in their actions. And he starts to call out certain actions here, beginning in verse 21. Where he says, you preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? Again, the answer is yes. We see an example of this in Malachi 3.8 where it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. And this is important. Uh, that tenth is referring to the requirement that Israel bring the first fruits of their harvest, their animals, a monetary contribution, and to bring that to the temple storehouse. And the purpose of this was, was to allow the Levites and priests to care for the tent of meeting. This was the very place that God dwelled with his people. 
So the people would provide for the Levites. The Levites would then be able to minister unto the Lord. But instead of giving what was rightly God's, what God had commanded them, they kept it for themselves. Instead of giving what was needed for the Levites to be able to offer sacrifices, to atone for the people's sins, to minister unto the Lord, instead they neglected it. And in doing so, they neglected God. They stole from him. Next, Paul says in verse 22, You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, while they knew the law, they did not follow it. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it wasn't that they just committed the act of adultery, but it was to the very heart of it. That if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have sinned. And finally, Paul says in verse 22, you who detest idols, do you rob their temples? Now we see a reference to this in Acts 19, I think it's Acts 19.37, that that the Jews actually had some reputation of, of robbing temples. Um, another way that this verse can be translated as, is actually as an act of sacrilege. Basically an attitude as an irreverence towards God. And we see in Deuteronomy 7.25, the Lord instructs Israel to destroy carved images of gods or the silver and gold on the images found in the land that they were possessing. So as God was giving Israel the land as they were moving through, defeating all these nations, he's saying, hey, everything that I'm telling you to destroy, everything that's left over, don't keep for yourself. And the reason for this was so that they wouldn't be ensnared by it, they wouldn't be trapped by it, they wouldn't put it ahead of God. But again, they didn't do that. In Joshua 7, we find a man named Achan. He was found to have taken silver and gold and other valuables from, from presumably Jericho after the people of Israel had defeated them. And this sin was so serious that it resulted in the entire nation of Israel being defeated at the hands of another nation, at the hands of Ai. Achan and his family were stoned because of this very sin. One man, one sin, resulted in the defeat of an entire nation. Another example we find is in 1 Samuel 15, if you want to turn with me there. 1 Samuel 15, we're going to find the prophet Samuel giving a clear and direct command to King Saul. And we're going to see how Saul responds to this. So verse 2 of 1 Samuel 15, we now read this. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. And to give a little bit of context, in Exodus 17, we find the Amalekites actually attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. And from that, God tells Moses that he will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So it's kind of serious when you mess with God. And in verse 9, or excuse me, we, say, we see that Saul is given a clear command, go and destroy everything, right? God has already called these things to be, hey, you go and be obedient and go destroy everything. But we see Saul's response in verse 9. It says, Saul and the troops spared King Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. It says later in 1 Samuel 15 that the Lord was grieved for making Saul king because of his disobedience. And to underscore the seriousness of this sin, if you look forward to Esther 3, if you remember Haman, who was the one who plotted to annihilate the Jews, 
was an Agagite, a descendant of this very king that Saul spared. So this sin was is a sin that reverberated throughout the generations. So back to 1 Samuel 15 and verse 19, Samuel confronts him. And he says, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But Saul said, I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Again, these were things that were, part, that were set apart for destruction, and instead Saul went against the Lord's command. He even says that he knew that they were the best of what is set apart for destruction. And he was going to take that and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. In verse 22, Samuel responds, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? He says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul thought that since, he had, that since he was going to sacrifice the animals that were captured, that that was a good thing. But the Lord wanted obedience. He told him to go and take care of everything, destroy everything. And Saul said, no, I will take what I want. And really that's the crux of this passage, this idea about obedience. It wasn't about the rituals, the sacrifices. It was a matter of their hearts following after God. Because to obey was better than all of those procedural requirements. Those were simply outgrowths of a heart that was wholly devoted to God. And you would want to follow the law, and you would want to follow the rituals of sacrifice because you understood your need for God. You understood your own unrighteousness, your own sinfulness, compared to a holy, pure, and just God. So when Paul is calling out the fact that they teach against these things like theft, adultery, and idolatry, yet they commit these same acts, he's indicting them that they are no different than anyone else. They are sinners like everyone else, like the Gentiles, even with the law. So what he says in Romans 2.12 is true, that you are a sinner with or without the law. You either died without it or you were judged under it. Either way, you are under judgment. This leads to Paul's final blow in verse 23 and 24, and this is our last point, and that's the result. This is a result, the result of their practices. So verse 23, it says, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. You have the law, you know the law, but you dishonor God by not keeping it. Because of you, his name is blasphemed. God had greatly blessed the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, but in return they they dishonored him. And that word dishonor means to despise, to insult, to treat disgracefully. Essentially, they were rejecting God. And because of this, God was blasphemed. And that verse 24 is actually quoted from Isaiah 52.5. And the word that Paul uses here for blaspheme is the same word that we see in Matthew 27, where the people are yelling insults at Jesus as he was being crucified. And it means to speak evil against, to use abusive or scurrilous language against God or men. So when Paul is using it here, he's using it to show that the Jews' conduct brought evil, abusive, scurrilous language from other nations against God. And scurrilous means that basically other nations were making and spreading scandalous claims about God with the intent of damaging his reputation.
reputation. His reputation. And we know that God cares about his reputation. We can see it in a few, um, uh, few verses here. So Exodus 34, 14. And the Lord says, The Lord is jealous for his own reputation. In Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In Isaiah 45, 5-7, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create disaster. I make success and create... Um, excuse me, I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. So we see that God is jealous for his name. He does not give his name. He does not give his glory to another. And because of his name, he acts. He does wondrous things to make him known. Remember when we saw in Romans 1.20, God is evident in creation. So we can, we can see him in creation. We see him in the miracles of the Old Testament that that the people of Israel saw it throughout their entire time as a nation. And we see it through his son, Jesus. You remember Jesus said in John 14, 7, that if you know me, you know the Father. We also see that other nations had heard of the Lord. And one place we see is in Joshua, chapter 2, verse 10, where Rahab is speaking to the Israelite spies in Jericho. And she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So we see that Rahab, a prostitute in a Gentile nation, heard of what the Lord had done and believed in him. We see later in Matthew 1.5 that she's actually counted as part of Jesus' genealogy. And in Hebrews 11, she's part of the hall of faith. A woman with great faith from a Gentile nation that simply heard of the Lord and believed in him. So God cares about his name. He cares about his reputation. He cares about his glory and he takes it seriously. And the truth is that so should we. And seeing this passage today, we should be careful not to take his name in vain. We should be careful not to make his name, his reputation, blaspheme because of our actions. Now, you, I think one thing, <laughs> one thing you might be asking yourself is, well, this is a really good history lesson, honestly, about the history of the Jews, but what does that have to do with me? And I think we should be reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that these things happen to them as examples. And then when he says to them, that means the Jews. And they were written for our instruction. So that whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. We can look back at the Jews and see what they did wrong and kind of understand where they went wrong and what we need to do about it. And the Jews were hypocrites because they knew God. They had a relationship with him. They knew his word, yet they ignored it. And they dishonored God in the process. And the question I think is important to ask ourselves is, can the same be said of us? You know, do we go out of these walls on a Sunday morning and we act like we've never been changed, like we've never encountered the living God? Are we Christ followers in name only? Do we know his word, but we don't apply it? Do we teach our children so that they will know who God is? 
Do we say to forgive, yet we don't forgive? Do we preach against the comforts of this world, but we still enjoy them ourselves? Do we know to share the gospel, yet we shy away from it? Instead, we want to talk about something else. Because the simple truth is that when we call ourselves Christians, when we know his word, when we have a relationship with him, yet we ignore him, we show ourselves as hypocrites, like the Jews did, and we make God look less important. So can the same be said of you and me? Can it be said of you and me? You know, Paul says to examine yourself, um, to test yourself, to see if you are in the faith. I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, Jesus Lord of our life? Is he Lord of our life? Have we surrendered everything to him? And some passage I think can cause us to examine, um, examine ourselves and lead us to repentance. For me, this is one of them. You know, to really st- step back and take stock of my heart and ask myself, are there areas in my life that I need to repent? Are there areas that I need to give to Jesus? And if that's you this morning, you need to run to Jesus. You need to run to him because our hope is in him. We sung about it this morning. Our hope is in him because we can't do it on our own. I'm going to invite the praise team back up as we, as we close out. If that is you this morning, um, so much of what we see in the Jews, you know, they had all these privileges, privileges. They had the truth that was among them, and yet they ignored it. And I think so much we can hear um, so many times we can hear the gospel and just we don't receive it. But um, I think when we understand our own depravity, when we understand our need for God, when we allow him to come into our hearts and do a work within us, that's when we become fully free. Because again, we cannot do this on our own. All right, let's, uh, let's pray as we respond. Father, we just thank you again for your word. God, we thank you so much for the truth that we have in your, your word, God. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to take upon the debt of our sin that was meant for us, and that through him we are clothed in his righteousness, that we can have peace with you, that we can be reconciled with you, that we can be friends with you, Lord. Father, just open up our hearts. Father, let your word just sink deep, convict us, lead us to repentance, God. Help us to draw, be drawn closer to you, Lord. So as we stand and as we sing and respond to you this morning, just let that work continue to be done among us. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.